Hare Prasiva. Uh, as usual, uh, at least my sermons, the quotes have been edited and cut and pasted. I want to especially acknowledge the inspiration of a brilliant 1994 article by Father Brian Harrison. It's called Bomb Shelter Theology. I won't be quoting from it, but it, it's uh, it, it, many years ago helped me sort out some important theological challenges, and it's definitely uh, was on the back of my mind when I was writing this sermon. So Father Brian Harrison, Bomb Shelter Theology. Bomb Shelter Theology, a really good article. Uh, so let's get started. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now imagine that you've been chosen to serve on a jury for a murder trial. Obviously, that's a very serious responsibility. Prosecution brings in their star witness. He's sworn in. And he says he actually watched the whole crime. He describes the whole sequence of events, testifying that the murder happened on a snowy night in January. The next day, he's sworn in again, and he goes back through the series of events, but this time testifies that the murder happened on a sunny day in July. Now wait a minute, says the defense attorney. Yesterday, you swore that the murder took place on a snowy night in January. But today you're swearing that it took place on a sunny day in July. Which is it? The witnesses replies, well, yes, I did get that wrong. Yesterday I did swear that the murder took place on a snowy day in January. But that's not true. It actually took place on a sunny day in July. But I swear to you that absolutely everything else that I've told you is completely true. Okay, given that you're a juror, and that this is a very serious responsibility, and that the key witness has completely changed his testimony on a major point, are you going to believe anything the witness says after that? Well, of course not. At that point, only a fool would take any claims of that witness seriously. He's completely and utterly destroyed all his credibility, hasn't he? It's obvious. No sane man would take the testimony of a proven liar who's lied under oath. No sane man would take that kind of testimony seriously. Now hold that thought. And let's remind ourselves of something we looked at last week. And that is the fact that our Lord established the church to be his living witness right until the end of time. Some 2,000 years ago, the church received the deposit of faith from Christ our Lord. Now remember what the deposit of faith is. We've talked about this before. The deposit of faith is the collection of all the truths which were revealed by God. It has two parts, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. The deposit of faith, it's also known as public or binding revelation was handed down from Christ to the apostles. The deposit of faith, public revelation, closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John. Since then, there never has and never will be any new public revelation. 
the deposit of faith can't be added to, nor can anything be removed from it. So the church's basic stand towards the truth she proclaims is that of a faithful witness. Some 2,000 years ago, she received this deposit of faith, the collection of all the truths revealed by God, to which nothing can be added, nor can anything be lost. So some 2,000 years ago, she received the deposit of faith through Christ our Lord. And she will and must faithfully witness to those truths in season and out of season until the end of the world, adding nothing and leaving nothing out. And this refusal to change any teaching to which she has committed herself is absolutely essential. She must be a faithful witness. As we've seen, if a key witness testifies to one thing and then later recants and completely changes his testimony on that same point, from that point onwards, only a fool would take any further claims of that so-called witness seriously. All right. And as we've just heard, part of the deposit of faith is the sacred scriptures. In its decree on the canonical scriptures, the fourth session of the Council of Trent teaches that, quote, it has thought it proper to insert in this decree a list of the sacred books, lest a doubt might arise in the mind of someone to which, all the book, to which are the books received by this council, close quote. Then after listing all the books of the Bible, including the three epistles of St. John, the council states, quote, But if anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts, as they have been accustomed to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. Close quote, the Council of Trent. So the Church has committed herself to a list of the books of sacred scripture, which includes the first epistle of St. John, as well as the contents thereof. And the Council of Trent states that if anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts, as they've been accustomed to have been read in the Catholic Church, and as they're contained in the Old Latin Vulgate Edition, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the foresaid traditions, let them be anathema. Next point. On this Sunday, in the Roman Rite, the most ancient rite of the Catholic Church, it has been the custom of the Church to read from the fifth chapter of the first epistle of St. John, a reading that is specifically announced as, quote, a reading from the epistle of St. John the Apostle, close quote, in which contains the line, and there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This line teaches in the most clear and unambiguous manner the doctrine of the Most Holy Trinity. There are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So this line has been public, publicly proclaimed as the Word of God in the Church's literature, the Roman Rite, for probably well over a thousand years. It's sacred scripture, it's impossible that the Church could publicly witness to this in such a serious way, and there's absolutely nothing more serious than divine liturgy. So what's the problem? Why are we spending so much time on this? 
We're going to get right to that. But first, let's quickly walk back through what we've done. What have we seen? We've seen that if a key witness completely changes his testimony in a major point, that by that very fact, he's completely and utterly destroyed all his credibility, and at that point, only a fool would take any further claims of that witness seriously. We've seen that some 2,000 years ago, the Catholic Church received the deposit of faith, also known as public or binding revelation, from Christ himself. We've seen that the deposit of faith is a collection of all the truths that were revealed by God, and that it has two parts, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. We've seen that the deposit of faith, public revelation, closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John, and since then, there never has been and never will be any new public revelation that a positive faith can't be added to, nor can anything be removed from it. We've seen that the church has the role of being a faithful witness to these truths, in season and out of season, right until the end of the world. And we've seen that as a result, it is absolutely essential that she refused to change any teaching to which she's committed herself. For although that's impossible, if she were to testify to one thing, and then later recant and completely change her testimony on that same point, then she would not be a faithful witness, and in fact, only a fool would take any further claims of that so-called faithful witness seriously. We've seen that the Church has committed herself to including the first epistle of St. John in sacred scripture, as well as the contents thereof, and that the Council of Trent states that if anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts, as they have been accustomed to have been read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. We've seen that on this very Sunday it has been the custom to read in the Catholic Church and indeed publicly proclaim as the Word of God in the liturgy of the Roman Rite, the very liturgy of the Pope himself, a reading that is specifically announced as, quote, a reading from the Epistle of St. John the Apostle, close quote, and which contains this line, there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And we've seen that because there's no, absolutely nothing more serious than divine liturgy, it's absolutely, completely, and utterly impossible that the church could be mistaken in her public witness in the papal liturgies for century after century. It's completely impossible that it could be mistaken that this line is indeed sacred scripture. The line is sacred scripture. Okay, so what? Here's the problem. This epistle was written in Greek. And out of the existing ancient copies of this epistle, there isn't a single one that contains this line. And these, there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Everybody get that? This epistle was written in Greek, and there isn't a single one of the existing ancient copies of this epistle that contains the line. And there are three who give testimony to heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 
Now this sort of thing sends many Protestant scripture scholars and seminary professors, and they're not necessarily much different. This sort of thing sends many Protestants, uh, seminary professors, and scripture scholars into a tailspin. And to put it into the kindest possible terms, since the Catholics have apparently adopted a Protestant methodology, naturally enough, they've come up with some really, really lame solutions. Now hold that thought, and we'll get a little historical perspective before we go on. We need to talk very briefly about the first great heresy to afflict the church. It's called the heresy of Arianism. In fact, a lot of what we'll sing in the creed here, it was placed there deliberately by the Council of Nicaea to respond to this heresy. The Arian heresy gets its name from a man named Arius. Is a priest from Alexandria, Egypt, who lived from about 256 to AD 336. Arius claimed that Jesus Christ was like God, but was not really God. And the upshot of that heretical claim is that, of course, then there's no Trinity, no incarnation, and no redemption. The Arians weren't even Christians. Okay, and the situation got bad, really bad. I mean, apocalyptically bad. St. Jerome, who lived from 331 to 420 during the worst stage of the Arian heresy, wrote, quote, The whole world groaned and was amazed to find itself Arian, close quote. The whole world groaned and was amazed to find itself Arian. Now, the great patristic scholar, Father William Jurgens, explains what St. Jerome meant by that. During the lifetime of St. Jerome, quote, perhaps the number of Catholic bishops in possession of sees, as opposed to Arian bishops in possession of sees, was no greater than something between 1 and 3% of the total. Close quote. At one point during the Arian heresy, only one to three percent of the bishops in the whole world were actually Catholic. All the rest were Arians, that is to say heretics. Ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent of the bishops in the whole world, east and west, were Arian heretics who denied that Christ our Lord was God and therefore denied the reality of the Most Holy Trinity. 97 to 99% of the bishops weren't Catholic. Okay, all that by way of background. As we've seen, the first epistle of St. John was written in Greek, and there isn't a single one of the existing ancient copies of this epistle that contains the line. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In his great commentary, written 400 years ago, Quinus Lapide explains why Greek copies of this epistle might be missing his line. Quote, in his preface to the canonical epistles, St. Jerome notes that this phrase was erased from some Greek codices by infidels, namely Arians. Accordingly, this phrase is not read in St. Ephraim of Syria, St. Clement of Alexandria, the Venerable Bede, Ecumenus, and some others. However, this has been read constantly in the Latin Bible and the more correct of the Greek Bibles, 
and in many other fathers, such as St. Athanasius, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Cyprian, the Lateran Council, which the Greeks were present, he's referring to the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and others, which are cited by St. Robert Bellman in his book on Christ. It is certain that this phrase must be read as, and must be, canonical scripture, and therefore, from these words, the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity and the divinity of both Christ and the Holy Spirit are rightly confirmed against the Arians and the Macedonians. The Macedonians deny the Holy Spirit was God. Close quote, Cornelius Salapene. It is certain that this phrase must be read as and must be canonical scripture, although it was erased from some Greek codices by infidels, namely Arians, but it's always been found in the Latin Bible and the more correct of the Greek Bibles. It is certain this phrase is canonical scripture. If the Arian crisis was so bad that 97 to 99 percent of the bishops in the entire world didn't believe in the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, how surprised should we be if the manuscripts suffered damage at the same time? Damage to which we have a reliable and holy witness, St. Jerome, the great doctor of sacred scripture. Okay, now let's turn to the standard explanation offered by many Protestants, scripture scholars, and seminary professors. But I repeat myself. The typical explanation is that this line is a commentary written in the margin of the Bible, and then later scribes mistakenly inserted it into the text. In other words, they hold it's not actually part of the Bible at all. It's just a big, giant mistake. And to be brutally honest here, I would be actually amazed to find one scripture scholar of one seminary in the world that would dispute this. I'd be actually amazed to find one scripture scholar in one seminary in the world that would defend the canonicity of this scripture. Even one. But in context, it's probably not that surprising. The percentage of the faithful prelates, priests, and for that matter, professors, probably aren't a lot different now than they were during the Arian crisis. So the standard explanation offered by many Protestants, scripture scholars, and seminary professors, this line is a commentary written in the margin of the Bible, later scribes mistakenly inserted into the text. In other words, they hold it's not actually part of the Bible at all. It's just a big mistake. And on that basis, during my lifetime, they have cut this line out of the new translations. It's certainly up there in the alternate It's certainly here in the lectionary. It's there in your hand missiles. It's in the Dewey Reams Bible. But it's nowhere to be found in the Catholic version of the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. Nor is it to be found in the NAB, the New American Bible, uh, well, for this and many other reasons, I think that the New American Bible, NAB, is actually what the real it's actually short for, not actually the Bible. Obviously, then, in spite of the fact there's absolutely nothing more serious than the divine liturgy, in spite of the fact that the church has publicly witnessed in papal liturgies for century after century after century that this line of sacred scripture, well, now it's been cut out of the Bible. Well, if we're going to get our scissors out, why stop there? Why stop there? Maybe the experts can help us out. What's going to miss, we can miss next? The stuff on Sodom and Gomorrah? Things on marriage? Who knows? 
After all, if we're going to accept this mutilation, then logically we have to accept the fact that the church is not a faithful witness. Keep in mind that the church has publicly proclaimed in the divine literature itself the most serious and solemn act possible to mankind, something even the angels can't do. The church has publicly proclaimed in the Roman Rite in the very masses offered by the popes themselves for century after century. The church has publicly testified that this line was indeed found in Scripture. This line was indeed found in the first epistle of St. John the Apostle. In other words, if we're going to accept this mutilation, then we have to accept the fact that the church has publicly and solemnly pronounced a lie right from the altar for century after century after century. A lie right in God's face and to all his people. And if the church hasn't been a faithful witness here, and that is what this means, that's exactly what this means. If the church can't even get the Bible right, why bother listening to her at all? I'm serious. I'm serious as a heart attack. If the church can't even get the contents of the Bible right, then what's the point? Only a fool would take any claims of witness like that seriously. If it took till our enlightened age to correct this gross error, that if over all this time she couldn't even get the contents of the Bible right, why should we believe she got anything else right? A witness like that really isn't worth listening to. She got it right. Of course she got it right. God won't let the priest destroy the church as much as we try. These unbelieving scripture scholars and seminary professors, academic pygmies of our modern age, taking their scissors to the word of God are just the latest addition to a long line of like-minded men. They're nothing new. In about AD 230, St. of Rome wrote about just such men. Now listen to this. I quote, They have not feared to lay hands upon the sacred scriptures, saying that they have corrected them. Nor is it likely that they themselves are ignorant of how very bold their offense is. For either they do not believe that the sacred scriptures were spoken by the Holy Spirit, in which case they're unbelievers. Or, if they regard themselves as being wiser than the Holy Spirit, what else are they but demoniacs? Close quote, St. Apollos of Rome. They have not feared to lay their hands upon the sacred scriptures, saying they have corrected them. Nor is it likely that they themselves are ignorant of how very bold their offense is. For either they do not believe the scriptures were spoken by the Holy Spirit, in which case they're unbelievers, or if they regard themselves as wiser than the Holy Spirit, what else are they but demoniacs? They have not feared to lay their hands on sacred scriptures, saying they commit corrected them. So either they don't believe the scriptures were spoken by the Holy Spirit, which means they're unbelievers, 
or they believe they're wise in the Holy Spirit, which means they're demoniac. 